Hi, this is Jim Ketting, that Bond guy we have today. A special guest, we have Scott Jones here, the guru of technology, the man, the myth, the legend. He, Scott has several patents in his name. He is uh, the system key system architect or principal system architect over at Axiom, does a lot of advisory work for the Venture Center, and has been in the computer business for a very, very long time. So we're very privileged and honored to have Scott Jones with us today. Scott, why don't you tell us a little bit about how did you get started with computers? I've always liked to solve problems and do math. And um, when the computer started coming out, um, it's like, well, I can, I can play with this. And it was uh, a game for me. Um, so trying to solve the puzzle and figure out what I could do next with it. Um, and then I which just led into, well, I could actually do this for a career. Um, <laughs> um, so with the math skills and logical skills, that the way my brain's kind of wired, it just kind of fell in into uh, a, the right time and the right uh, technology at the right time. Now, in high school, were you into computers then? Or a little bit. Um, uh, we had a Fortran class, but the instructor was probably one or two chapters ahead of us, uh -huh. <laughs> taking it at Euler and then giving it to us. Um, so uh, we were Quickly kinda, surpassed him. <laughs> yeah, it could be. He's a really nice, really bright guy. We just it, Not the same level as today what you would have in high schools. Yeah, in high school, you graduated in when? 19, 86. 1986. So that so, was in the 80s when computers, uh, yeah. personal computer was just They actually starting. led us on the uh, mainframe of the district to do our development and coding, which oh wow, could be a little scary. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then you went to school, to college. Yes. And did you major in computer science? I majored in music education and computer science. Oh, so wow. I have a, uh, I spent a long time to get two bachelors. So I have a music education, which is my other passion, and um, had some job problems playing clarinet, so uh, continued on and finished my um, computer science degree and been in the industry since then. So what was your first, tell me a little bit about your first job out of, uh, out of school with computers. Um, my first job was in school. Um, mm -hmm. I worked for the uh, Entergy at the nuclear plant. I went to Arkansas Tech University. So I got a co-op position um, two years in the la my last two years and was able to work for their IT division. I focused on really networking there because they did mostly PC support and I didn't want to get a computer degree and do PC support. Um, so I was working on networking, was able to do my systems analysis um, project um, and get paid for it. Mm -hmm. uh, worked, worked out real well there. Yeah, that's and, always, always fun, getting paid for it. Getting paid for it. And then I started at Altel, who just changed names from Systematics and worked um, for about six, seven years for uh, um, Altel Information Services. And then Altel was Systematics and then went back to, that's that's FIS. You know, that yeah, FIS bought them about a year after I moved from Altel to um, Axiom. 
Okay. So Alto was in that phase of they were kind of creating divisions within their company and rolling off their wired line and rolling off the things that weren't um, cell phone um, and then got bought by Verizon. So, um, but a lot of the guys that are still over there are still uh, doing things over the, there. But did uh, call center applications and back office applications um, and did integration for uh, Altel um, FIS. Okay. Um, so let me ask you this. Now, Axiom, you started with Axiom. You went over there, and uh, Axiom, somebody told me it's the one company that you might have never heard of but knows more about you than any other company out there. Is that is that true, or is that... Uh, it's somewhat true. It's um, They do a lot of work um, in identity and helping figure out um, in the public, uh, all the public uh, information that's out there, they can help uh, figure out identity. So my wife, um, Amber Carter, at an address, and Amber Jones at the address are the same people because there's public records saying that she was married and changed her maiden name from Carter to Jones. Yeah. Um, so... They built all of that into um, a knowledge uh, knowledge base, and then are able to hand out links from that um, in a very privacy compliant way. Uh, Axiom's really built up by being able to be private privacy and security around it. They basically will sit between a, a financial institution and the credit bureau and from. Um, institution and we're kind of the middleman in between them that uh, won't let the other side see things until it's appropriate and the right time. Um, so most of our work really are with large scale institutions and helping manage their data and figure out who are who do they have on their customer base. Uh, you call into in, Entity One and you say, hey, uh, put me on your do not call list. You expect that all your accounts are on your do not call list. Right, right. Uh, how do They may not know that there's four, eight different systems underneath the covers. Yeah. So we do a lot of work, and as more privacy concerns come about, the more they're going to need... Uh, our capabilities to help facilitate those problems. Um, Has Facebook called you anytime? Yeah. <laughs> Hasn't called us anytime. Now, um, we do a lot of, Facebook's more of a closed garden. Everything stays, well, not stays contained recently, um, but all of the data goes in and they don't share anything out where we can work with a large institution and work with vendors like that where the large institution owns the data, keeps the whole of the data, and um, it's not a black box. Um, so so you're probably working with like a, a Visa and a MasterCard and a lot of those big, huge data transactions to to look at. Uh, somebody wants to know what's going on and who's buying this, but uh, they don't really want to give out the specific information on that person. Yeah. Um, there's a lot. We don't deal with the brands Visa and MasterCard as much as we deal with the institutions that use those 
those uh, services. So Bank of America. America, Bank of America, or, or any of those type of institutions is how can we do analysis across activities, um, both what's known as online and offline. So online when you're on the web, how can we do that in a privacy compliant way? How can we combine it with the offline? Okay, you go to Bank of America, Bank A, and you, you write a check, you open a loan, all of those transactional information, how can I combine all of that and find patterns? Okay. Uh, and we find those patterns, but we don't know who the patterns apply to. It's all anonymized. So uh, the marketing department can look at it and says, I did, I did this particular uh, marketing spin. I spent this much on Facebook, this much on X, Y, and Z to um, run ads to try to increase a particular product. Well, how did it... How did that ad spin work? Uh, we can give you the, those patterns. We can give you how well they did, uh, what kind of uh, particular um, people might have um, replied to those offers. But it's really not that it was you, Jim. It was somebody with attributes like you that's really good looking and has a beard and yeah and yeah smart left, guy left-handed redhead left-handed <laughs> redheaded plumbers uh, is what we always say but so doing that in a very privacy compliant way um, that um, the consumers know exactly how their data is being used um, and the institution knows exactly how the data is being used um, basically allows them to target uh, ads that are going to be more beneficial to you than just generic. Uh-huh. I got it. Now, you did, you have several patents, don't you? Yes. Okay. Didn't you have some patents around this? or? I have, uh, yes. The ad tech space for advertising technology space, uh, one of the patents that um, basically was broken to three, so I have three of those patents are all about how we combine offline and online in a privacy compliant way and find those patterns that protects the information. So that, that mechanism of how you bring stuff together and then you can do the analytics on top of that is what those patents are. They're, um, so I've got three that have been issued and three more that are pending. Wow. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Those take a long time to get. It's been about five years for the three. Wow. Uh, I've got two of more of those that um, were filed at the same time, and then I've got uh, another one that was filed about a year and a half ago. All right, so those patents are pretty impressive. Uh, I know that they're expensive. They take a long time to get. You have a lot of uh, legal uh, lawyers behind those, and then there's a lot of technical side that you've got to uh, spend to the attorneys. Any more that, that you're doing like that? or um, We may have some more coming coming down the pike. It just depends on what's uh, the current problem set in front of us. And Axiom's done a real good job the last six, seven years of uh, promoting their, their patent um, projects. 
making sure that we evaluate everything before we deliver. Yeah. Because um, once you make something public, it starts a clock. Yeah. Um, so the, it's a real conscious effort over the last six years to uh, look at what we're producing, decide what um, could be patentable, and then run it, start the process of that. So would big companies like Bank of America or Facebook or you know Google or any of those other companies use those type of patents that you guys um, Very possible they could. Um, just the one patent around how to bring stuff together um, just got issues. So then it starts to look at who else may be doing something like that yeah. similar. Um, the patent office did searches against that. So um, to make sure there wasn't any uh, previous art. Right. So, but now would be um, looking at um, other institutions that do that. Um, and it can be used as a form of kind of currency to help um, um, trade with other companies, you know. Um, so it, it just uh, solidifies that uh, where we are in the space that we are a privacy brand, yeah, um, which is the main focus. Um, now, you're also, with Axiom, you're also coming over to the Venture Center and doing a lot of mentoring work, and a lot of uh, mentoring work with fintech companies over there in particular. Um, is that fun for you? Do you like uh, working with the... It, it's a lot of fun. Um, the Venture Center is bringing in 10 new... 10 new um, startups each year in their fintech accelerator that's the way i met you in the first accelerator class um, seeing those ideas of what these companies are doing in the financial space uh, my background um, coming from um, writing bit uh, banking applications with uh, altel and fis um, and really, a lot of the Axiom stuff is dealing with fin large financial institutions. So um, it's just uh, a good way to keep myself um, um, open to what's going on across um, the industry. Um, I mean, Axiom has a lot of leading edge things, but we're still kind of in our own space. So, yeah. mm -hmm. so looking at these other companies and payment methods and, and a lot of the current um, fintech companies uh, in the next accelerator using blockchain, which is new, newer technologies. Um, so that'll be real interesting to uh, kind of be introduced to those 10 companies and what they think about um, the industry and how they're applying that. Yeah, that's really good. So you're uh, technically, I guess, the principal system architect, or what is that? Um, I'm a principal architect okay. um, is, is the title. Um, so um, principal is uh, like the next to highest level. There's an Axiom fellow that's above that. Um, so... I'm basically focus um, my work on application architecture, how to put the whole thing together, how to uh, make sure that we're solving the business needs. Um, my emphasis has been around transactional 
systems um, that uh, the APIs um, that you expose. I did a lot of that in the call center where um, every second that um, a call center agent had a client on the line was money. And if you could, if you could speed up the, the calls to the back-end systems and give all the information the call center agent needed right then, you could save them a 10 seconds on average call, could save them um, a lot of uh, overhead and extra manpower that they would need. Um, so take that, bring it over to Axiom, the ad tech space, uh, where I really got to do ultra low latency. In ad tech, when you're navigating a website and they're wanting to uh, decide what ad to put on that, they don't have that long to do that. So we right. we clocked all of our um, our overhead. We wanted everything to be under 10 milliseconds. And 10 milliseconds is what? What is 10 milliseconds? It's... Uh, very, very short. I mean, just uh, shorter than a snap um, mm -hmm. of your fingers. So we uh, measured our system from the time that the call came in to the time the call went out, and we we did stress testing against that, doing two reads to a terabyte against a terabyte of data, one write to that same data store under 10 milliseconds. Um, so we ended up at the end of the system with really um, in production one to two reads against uh, a terabyte of data averaging about two milliseconds for the overall latency. And we hit um, three billion transactions a day. Oh my gosh. That's really amazing. And, and you wrote that all in Fortran? Yeah, I wrote that all in <laughs> Java, which uh, most uh, people in the industry would have not done. Uh -huh. um, you, any language can be used for evil or for good <laughs> if you know the pros and cons over that. Um, so at that point, we did everything in Java and were able to uh, on average, uh, get lower latency than the Python guy that was that was a good friend of mine. We'd always harass each other of who had the uh, lowest latency. Mm -hmm. And uh, he would always say, well, yours is on average because there's a little garbage collection in there. Um, mm -hmm. We minimized it. Um, so, didn't Java work fine? Um, kept running. Axiom, like big companies, bought another company that did a whole spread slew of things called LiveRamp, and so uh, we ended up turning off our system and letting LiveRamp um, proceed in that area. You said something about Java, and I, I get confused sometimes, you know, you hear Java and JavaScript, and, and somebody was telling me those are two completely different things. Same syntax uh, in some respects, but different. Um, Java is your traditional that uses a virtual machine, um, which basically you write the syntax, and the virtual machine is built for either Windows or for the um, particular OS, and that kind of isolates you from having to know about the operating system and compiling it specifically to that. So it uses a virtual machine and runs everywhere. 
JavaScript is a more of a scripting language using the same syntax, and it really was built to run within the browsers. Got so, it. so it's what's made all the browsers go from um, very simple um, text editing and entry to complex applications and and widgets and all that because the code's running in the browser versus going back to the server. Got it. And so there's there's lots of different JavaScripts. I've heard of Node.js and Angular.js and Vue and all this stuff. They all is it all have some similarity or functions or what's the difference between like Node and Angular? Or? Okay, Node is a way to run JavaScript. So okay. it's more like the virtual machine. It's how you execute it. Um, so a lot of time the browsers execute JavaScript. Notice how we execute JavaScript on the server. Okay. So I can use Java, and we're switching from using pure Java to JavaScript because I can use some of the same libraries on the client in the browser that I use on the server. Um, so Node's how we run Java on the server because I don't have a browser. Um, and then Angular and some of the others are libraries that you can run in JavaScript on okay. either side. Um, Angular is a good set of libraries to do visualization, mm -hmm. but there's 10x plus uh, <laughs> libraries. There's always new ones, there are always new versions of, of uh, libraries uh, coming out uh, to do different visualization, different tools. Well, it sounds like uh, that's that's a whole nother show just on Java versus JavaScript and all that other stuff. <laughs> Tell me about, you know, another big term that's floated out there quite a bit is one called big data. What is big data? Well, actually, we've been doing big data for a long time. It's just huge amount of data. The, the amount of data that is collected these days is just growing exponentially. Um, I went over to Axiom from the systematics um, FIS, and it was just like, Oh, a small database had 70 million customers in it. Wow. Um, and I'm just like, okay, that get my head around that. And then you start talking about, for the ad tech, for instance, we took at the top of uh, our game before we kind of shut the system down, we were taking a billion transactions a day. That's a lot of exhaust that you... How do I make any sense of a billion transactions? Right. There's a lot of noise in there because if in the ad tech world, I have to accept transactions from any browser in the U.S., in right. the world, and those could be just random. It could be bots. It could be any type of thing. And then some of them are true business transactions. So I just poured that exhaust over, over the wall and then we would process that nightly and try to make sense of three billion transactions a day, bounce that against the historical information I've created over um, a year of three billion transactions a day. That's where you're talking big data in the ad tech space. Then you start getting into um, IoT, these devices that you carry around your watch, on your wrist, um, that are being built into 
all sorts of things. They're outputting this constant streams yeah, of data. The, the Internet of Things. The Internet of Things, just a constant stream of data. How do I make any sense out of that? How do I make that into actionable data that, um, oh, I need to do this because X, Y, Z happened. So we've been doing that um, in um, for large-scale clients, but the amount and the volume just keeps growing each year. Yeah. Um, so the way you have to manage it, the same concepts in managing the data, you still have to curate it, you still have to um, make sure you cleanse it and throw out stuff, um, but it's just at such a higher rate. Well, there's been a change, you know, in, in databases uh, going from a, a SQL uh, database to a NoSQL database. Uh, and, you know, I think NoSQL is a little more friendly to a data scientist. Is that correct? Um, yes, it, it can be. A lot of, it depends on the category of NoSQL because there are a lot of categories of NoSQL. I would consider there's a lot of name value databases. Um, that worked real well in the ad tech space because we could, we, we had an ID, we'd go look up attributes and we, and we return it. Um, then there's document stores. So stop thinking about um, how to break up um, the data into um, SQL tables that are completely normalized and, and stuff. It works well to make sure you don't repeat any data. Um, that was a concept um, in the SQL databases. And the document stores, the way I think about it is, what's the interface? What are they going after? How are they accessing the data? If I'm coming after a customer record and I always want the account, right? information with mm -hmm. it, I store it all together, okay? Now that account may mean it's listed on your customer record and your wife's customer record. We're, re we're replicating the data, okay? and we have to manage that if something changes. But when I come in and get your account, I have everything I need right in that one call. So it makes the retrieval a lot quicker it makes uh, the APIs a lot simpler because I have everything. But that's looking at the usage patterns, uh, what are you going after, how, then I figure out how to organize the data that way. And space is cheap. Yeah, yeah. Um, so why not replicate the data when it makes sense? Right. Um, if it if I'm always going in and doing tons of editing and maybe it doesn't make sense. So it's a good, you have to kind of look at what your system does, what the usage patterns are, and make a good balance on that. The good thing about a document store is one document can look different than the next document stored right next to it. So all the systems that use that have to adjust for that, but it's easy to add attributes. Mm -hmm. um, so for Axiom, 
it's been a real good because we have multiple clients and trying to create a product out of something and this client wants attribute A, this other client wants attribute yeah. C, uh, then I'd have to have a different database structure and change the API layer. Well, I can just put those different attributes on their document and pass them all the way through. The consuming area has to be able to adjust for some flexibility of unknown attributes. So the development time on adding another system is, is a lot. It's just inexpensive. Uh, it's n the plumbing doesn't have to change. Got it. So I'm not, every time that you add an attribute, I'm not changing the plumbing in between. I'm changing the storage and I'm changing the um, system that's going to use that attribute. Um, so the way I've designed it is our documents, there are sections of it that are fixed. These won't change. This is the important stuff from an Axiom point of view. This other section can grow and, and morph. I don't care. The plumbing's just going to pass it through, and then the client can um, look into that section that, and get specific things out of it that I don't ever have to look at. So the, the biggest key is, is speed and then flexibility uh, to change. Yes, uh, and is, know exactly is, is what inputs you need to hand it and what are the outputs that can come out of it and what are the air conditions yeah. that can come out of it. And so if you do that right, then multiple other companies can use your system and it just makes it easier to integrate and easier to... Uh, interact with other systems makes sense now um the another thing that we're talking about is you know the speed of this uh, oh uh, the systems and how how um when we start talking about you know making things faster we were talking a little bit about uh, java and uh, javascript a while back uh, can you tell me what what's the difference between java and javascript Java is, they're both a language Java, using the same Java syntax. Java is a language that uses what's called a virtual machine, which is kind of sits between that language and the system it runs on. So I can write the same code in Java and run it on a Mac, run it on Windows, run it on countless Linux variations, because those uh, system providers, operation system providers, will cr have a different VM okay. version of that that works for that particular set of hardware. Well, that has made Java very much uh, a prevalent language because I can write it once and run it anywhere um, capability. So that's what's been going on for a long time. Income JavaScript. JavaScript is more of a scripting language that came out of the web browser area. Okay. So the web browsers, to when they first started, were very clunky in their interfaces, and they'd have to send data all the way back to the server to execute code with JavaScript and some other scripting languages, now they can run code 
in the browser. That makes all the fancy gizmos on the, on, on the websites work faster and run on your computer. It cuts down the amount of traffic between your computer and the server. So that's where JavaScript came from, its life cycle um, and historic capabilities. Um, So the next evolution was, can I run JavaScript on a server? Uh -huh. And that's where Node.js, which is a different um, way of executing JavaScript, instead of in a browser, because a server doesn't have a browser, yep. we use Node.js um, to execute it. And one of the reasons you may want to uh, execute um, JavaScript on the server is now I'm using the exact same language and could be using the exact same libraries in the browser that I'm using on the server. So that means I um, can create um, functions and libraries once and use them in both places. Mm. So Now what about the functions? I mean, you know, it, it, can you speed it up instead of having the the calculator so be on the server maybe move that to the browser and that's that that's up. why if in javascript is i wrote if i write a calculation like a bond calculation that takes five inputs i could run that on either place and there are times where i i need that library on both places so with the browsers, we want to run more stuff in browser to make it faster and not make a network call. But I want to write that calculation more than once yeah, in yeah. different languages. So this is a, a, a why a lot of people are using Node.js to execute JavaScript on the server. Now we've got the same language. We can share libraries across it and we execute those libraries where it makes sense for that particular business need. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Now, um, you're going to be one of the guest speakers or the gurus there at the Mongo Worldwide Conference up in New York. Uh, tell me, what, what, is, what is MongoDB and why are you guys using it and how'd you get to be a guru for them? Uh, MongoDB is a NoSQL database. It's a document store. so. They store documents for, um, and let you pull those documents um, back by multiple methods. Uh, Axiom started utilizing uh, Mongo two to three years ago to store our, all of our administrative data, so metadata on our system. So we were building a brand new system, and all systems have administrative tables. What's the users? Who, what organizations do they belong to? Right. Uh, configuration. We switched over from a SQL to a document store to do that, and it simplified the world. Um, we, going into a brand new system, I don't know all the switches I need and configurations I need. I have organizational structures about it. I have, I've got a customer settings, I've right. got an organization settings, I've got these concepts, but I may not have every attribute I need on that concept until um, eight weeks from now. It's like, 
crap, I need another switch. Okay, how do I add that? Um, in the sequel, I've got to change all the plumbing to yeah. do that. And a document store, no sequel, I, the system that needs it and the storage are the only two places that have to have to change. Mm -hmm. All the plumbing stays the same. That worked real well for us. So then about a year ago, I started looking at how could I use a document store in place of what we're doing for our operational data store. So we write marketing systems that are warehouses and marts. We collect all the clients' data they give us and we organize it, make it available for tools. Um, and then a part of that, we make some of that data available for APIs or real-time um, inspection of the data. So uh, they could say, show me all the offers you've given to a particular client because I've got him on the phone. He called him for a complaint. I'm taking care of that, but I may want to know what outstanding offers we've given to them either online or in mail or other methodologies. So we've traditionally created um, one-off sets of APIs that are specific for that client, more of a white glove uh, way of doing business for that. About a year ago, it was like, well, we're making a product out of these things. How can I make it repeatable and get it um, and not have to do reinvent the wheel every time? Yeah. So kind of uh, put together a little white paper on how I would use a document store that some pieces of that document would be very rigid because our APIs would look into that and say, here's how I'm gonna search against it, here's how I'm gonna maintenance against it. Other parts of that document, I could care less what's in it. Yeah. So each client can put at whatever sets of attributes they need in that, but none of the plumbing has to change. Yeah, it sounds like it gives you a lot of speed and flexibility. Uh, it, it does, so, um, had that white paper kind of sitting sitting there, and then we went to Mongo World last year, and they did a presentation about this new API layer, um, which is a cloud service um, that allow, allows you to build an API but not worry about all the other stuff. And it connects straight to their Mongo database cloud service, so I don't have to worry about configuration or any of that. Well, we came back, and the very next week, um, Karen Wilson and I put together a proof of concept in less than a week. She wow. worked on that API layer, uh, which I kind of had outlined what I wanted it to look like. I worked at loading data in that, and less than a week, we had a fully functioning system. And it was like, this stuff kind of works. <laughs> um, and works real well. So then we proceeded off of that to make it into a product and roll out our first customer on, on that product um, and working with Mongo and their sales rep and some consulting. Because we were new in this, we bought a f some consulting hours just to come and double check. Sure, sure. Um, and we're very, the consultants were very happy at the design. They said, they spend most of their time just trying to get people to re change their thinking about how to organize using a document store versus 
a database, none of that. We didn't have to go through any of that. So you're going to tell people how, how to go from SQL to non-SQL? I'm going to give them basically our, our uh, presentation is going to give basically how our path uh, went from um, going from SQL to non-SQL and, and our, our journey using uh, their new API layer and how switching over to document storage kind of simplified the whole, simplified the whole stack. Now, do you got a working title for this? Uh... Right now, the working title is Pissing Off IT and Delivery, <laughs> um, The Tale of Two ODSs. <laughs> so that really stemmed from trying to get a, a snappy title to get people in the door. Um, and then uh, because both the database and the API layers are cloud-based, we don't need any of the IT services that we've done. They've been real happy with us and our approach, and we've bounced everything off of them, but um, uh, we don't need them right now because Mongo takes care of all the maintenance, all the management of the database uh, um, without us having to deal with any of that. And then our concept moving from uh, SQL to a NoSQL and making a repeatable system, well, we don't need delivery teams going building one-offs anymore. So, thus, here's the title, Pissing Off IT and Delivery. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't want to piss off your IT. <laughs> no, we've, we've got a good working relationship with them, but, you know. It's, it, a it's, title. it's a good hook to get people, and I'm sure I'm going to have a few IT people in the room <laughs> at the time. Well, that's good. Now, uh, let me ask you this. On the, the MongoDB thing, that the worldwide thing in New York, that's a pretty big deal. I mean, that's, there, there's going to be quite a few people at that, isn't there? Yes, it's their, their worldwide uh, conference. So they'll have people coming from all over the world, and this is kind of a popular deal looking at moving from uh, SQL to NoSQL and uh, adding, that, adding that speed and that, that flexibility. So there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of technology people who are really interested in that. I think Cisco's a, a big partner with them. Are yeah. they going to do some speaking there? Yeah. Um, so it, a lot of the industry is moving away from uh, SQL um, to non-SQL. But it's like any other new tool you get. Where is it appropriate to apply that tool? And where are the old tools better? So there are still yeah. systems mm -hmm. that... Uh, it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's all. not a one-size-fits-all. Nothing is in the industry. So um, I would say we're not going completely away from SQL. Um, but having this new concept, you as you start building or taking on a new project, you think about, is this appropriate? What's the appropriate tools? Now I have a new set of tools. It's uh, document stores. Got it. Got it. So um, that's going to be when? Is, it, is that in June? That's in June. In like June. The, the third week of June. In June. So that, that'll be fun up in New York. June, June action in New York at the MongoDB. So, Scott, let me ask you this, you know, before we close. Give me kind of your overall philosophy on technology. I've alluded to this in some of my answers, but 
I don't focus on technology. I focus on the business problem that's in front of us and then use the right tools for that business problem. Um, that's really important. It is. You can get uh, the shiny new ball, um, the squirrel effect. You can get sidetracked uh, with technology. Oh, wait a minute. There's a squirrel over there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, when And this has really helped um, with my work with the Venture Center and mentoring the startups uh, versus coming from large business companies is what are you trying to sell? What are you trying to put out there? What's the business? What's what's the problem you're trying to try fix? fix? And how can I fix that in the fastest way and least expensive way? Um, may not be the, the very best way right then is uh, it's balancing all of those um, variables and and kind of picking the right technology for that uh, particular, that point in time. Um, yeah, I think that's really good, Scott. You know, one of the things that uh, I hear often is, you know, here's the problem, I want to fix this problem, and there's a, a, a process called the five whys, you know, and sometimes people say, well, I want to fix this to get this fixed, and why do you want to get that fixed? Well, so I get this fixed, so I get this fixed. So... A lot of times, if you really do the questioning, uh, they're going from point A to point B to point C to point D to point E to point F. And from your perspective, if you have all that information, you say, well, why don't we just go right from A to F? Yeah. <laughs> so it's really just, uh, under, it's all about the business. I mean, what business are you trying to sell? And some may be more technology businesses, uh, but others may not. And so applying the right tools uh, for the least amount of time and, and basically the least amount of resources, time and money, right. um, to, get that, to get that going um, and solving the business problem and rinse and repeat. What's your next biggest problem? Okay, so that iterative development, with, uh, you do that on the high level, also on the low level. Well, I think that's one of the, the biggest values that you provide anyone, Scott, is that, uh, you know, going after a, a big project can, you know, I mean, some of the ones that Axiom does are, you know, multi, multi-million dollar projects. And uh, to have a, a couple bright guys on the front end to think through that and help think through that problem, you know, it, it could save them a couple million dollars on down the road because when you have all these developers and all this time and everything into it, it really does save a lot of money. You know, when you have somebody with a couple gray hairs who, who's been around the block once or twice and has, has, has built and rebuilt and built and rebuilt. Yep. So, well, Scott, thank you so much. I really appreciate you today. 